0: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we welcome back Boston University Law Professor Jay Wexler, When he last spoke to us, he had taken a road trip around America to visit sites of Supreme Court battles. Now he's taken a global odyssey looking at places where religion and environmentalism collide. We speak to him about his new book, When God Isn't Green. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. And today we're welcoming back one of our first guests on the show. Uh, he first joined us in 2012 with an episode we called Religion and the Law. And we're happy to welcome back Jay Wexler to talk about his new book, When God Isn't Green, A Worldwide Journey to Places Where Religious Practice and Environmentalism Collide. Jay Wexler is a professor at the Boston University School of Law, where he has taught environmental law and church-state law since 2001. He's the author of three previous books, one of my favorites, Holy Hullabaloo's, and another book called The Odd Clauses. Jay Wexler, welcome to Things Not Seen.
1: Thank you. It's great to be back.
0: Yeah, it's good to have you back. I'm so excited for this new book. I, When I got started reading it, uh, it, it had all the pieces that I, I loved about your earlier book, Holy Hullablues. It was funny, it was engaging, but it was also incredibly informative. And I wonder if, if we could start out just uh, sort of talking briefly about what you're trying to accomplish in this new book, When God Isn't Green.
1: Well, I'm trying to point out that there are kind of inevitable conflicts around the world uh, between religious freedom and environmental protection. And I'm trying to explain to my readers uh, that that clash occurs. You have a very difficult tension that that is very hard to resolve. So in other words, uh, what I do in the book is I go around the world and I examine places where religious practices just happen to harm the environment and talk about what societies are doing to try to deal with that problem. And i trying to impress uh, upon the people who read the book that there are no easy solutions when you have a clash like that. That we, when you value two things uh, really seriously and they happen to clash, uh, you have a lot of uh, hard, you know, balancing to do. So if we believe in environmental protection, but we also, most of us, I think, believe in religious freedom, and so when they run into each other it raises some really difficult
0: issues. And we talked about this extensively in our last interview, but for those listeners who haven't had a chance to go back and hear that yet, let's maybe start the conversation with sort of a, a general definition. When you use the term religious freedom, what are we talking about?
1: I guess I'm talking about the uh, freedom of religious believers to not just believe in what they want, but to practice what they believe in. Given that the government is uh, often passes laws that, prohibit certain kinds of behavior, and those laws happen to oftentimes restrict what religious believers can do. The claim that religious believers make is that they, uh, that they should have some sort of freedom, uh, constitutional freedom, or sometimes it's under a, a statute or something, uh, to practice their religion, even though there might be a government interest on the other side or government law that might pro- pro- prohibit them from otherwise practicing what they, what they believe in.
0: Now, why in the world would a government ever want to stop a nice religious person from practicing some aspect of what they believe?
1: Well, uh, usually it's not because they are anti-religion or that they want to target the religion or be mean to the religion, although sometimes that's, that happens. But oftentimes you have the government trying to promote just a general interest, say, for example, uh, the interest in um, keeping people from using drugs and uh, or Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, You know, you can't use... The federal government says you can't use marijuana. You can't sell marijuana or smoke marijuana. And there happen to be religious people who believe they ought to... uh, They're required to smoke marijuana. Now, the government isn't trying to crush the religion through that general law, but it does have the effect of limiting what the religious uh, believer can do. Or to take... um, Let's see, to take another example, there was a... The, uh, the the Air Force used to have this rule that said you couldn't wear headgear, uh, any kind of headgear if you were in the Air Force, and the rule, that was for some sort of safety or protection reason or uniformity reason uh, that the government passed that regulation and wasn't like aiming it. Jews, for example, who believe they have to wear a yarmulke, but it happened to have the effect of restricting this uh, guy's right to wear a a yarmulke, and so he sued and ended up losing in the Supreme Court, although the the government finally let him wear his yarmulke. So it's when the government tries to promote a general interest, and it happens to have the incidental effect kind of inevitably on somebody's religious beliefs.
0: So if I'm hearing you correctly, sometimes the government passes something that is uh, a law for safety or for... Uh, general uh, welfare of a population, and it has a secondary effect of of curbing some religious practice, like in the in the example that you gave, wearing a headgear, a yarmulke. Um, those are not examples of religious persecution, are they?
1: No, I don't think they are. I don't think um, I would de- I wouldn't describe them as religious persecution. I would describe them as simply. Uh, class between world views in a way uh, the government has one view that certain things are important, and then individuals individuals who practice uh, their religion have a different view i'm 'm thinking of uh, <clears throat> a more contemporary example um from uh this this case that came out of newark and, it, and there are cases uh, like it where the police department uh prohibits people from wearing beards you know and uh that 's to to create this esprit de corps uh kind of interest and but then there are there are Muslims who believe that they ha- they can't shave their beard for religious reasons and what happens when those
0: two interests clash If you're just joining us uh, this is things not seen I'm David Dalt and we're speaking today with Jay Wexler he is the author of the new book When God Isn't Green a worldwide journey to places where religious practice and environmentalism collide Now, a moment ago, we were talking about examples of laws that are not specifically targeted to curb religious practice. But in your book, Holy Hullabaloo's, uh, and I'm sure in in contemporary case law, we could find examples as well of points where the government oversteps and actually attempts to curb the practice of a a religious uh, practice or a, a religious group. Could you give us an example of that?
1: Are you talking about uh, instances where the government does, in fact, you think, target the religious group?
0: Yes, instead of instead of just having a general law that has a secondary effect, but instead they're actually going after a specific religious practice.
1: Right. Sure. So that does happen. There's a famous case in the Supreme Court about it, where the Supreme Court said you can't do that. <clears throat> it was a nine to zero decision. It was it involved uh, animal sacrifice in uh, in Miami. The San- a Santeria group had started. Uh, sacrificing animals kind of in public or made it, made it public that they were doing it. And the, the town kind of flipped out and over the course of a weekend passed a bunch of laws that purported to be like general animal uh, safety laws or, or protection laws, but were in fact aimed directly at the Santeria practice. And so <clears throat> that happens. And the Supreme Court says if it, can, if, it, if it finds out about that, you know, if you do, if you do it in a really crude way and the, the courts can tell that that's what you're doing, uh, the court will strike it down. Uh, Anti-Sharia laws, for example, might uh, fall under that category. We have laws and for example, Oklahoma had a law they passed which, which said that the, the courts of Oklahoma shall not rely on any foreign law, including Sharia law. And that basically discriminating against a specific religion in the court there, uh, that wasn't the U.S. Supreme Court, but the, I believe the Oklahoma Supreme Court, or perhaps it was the 10th Circuit court of appeals, uh, the federal court struck that down as a pure discrimination against religion. So it certainly happened.
0: Now, just to make sure that I'm clear and our listeners are clear, there are points when the government has a legitimate stake to step in if it's doing what's called general law, or I believe there's another term neutrally applicable law. And that's, that's constitutionally protected behavior on the part of our American government. But there are other examples of other times when a government at the federal level or the, the local level might specifically target a religion. And you, you talked about the Santeria case but also Sharia law. And when you're singling out a religion and saying that practice is not okay, then there's a, there's a constitutional restriction against the government doing that. Am I correct about that?
1: That's correct. And I would make two uh, two further um, clarifications. Also, one is that sometimes it's hard to tell if you have a general law, of new- a neutral law of general applicability, or whether you have a law that kind of. Um devalues religion. For example, if you have a law that looks general, but it has a bunch of exceptions, but no exception for religion, sometimes you could argue, well, that's a law that really doesn't respect religion as much as it should. For example, this beard situation that I was just talking about comes from a case uh, where the Third Circuit Court of Appeals said that the Newark Police Department's uh, restriction on wearing beards was actually unconstitutional because there was an exception for medical reasons, uh, but not an exception for religious reasons. And that's that's kind of a hard case, but but it, it points out that sometimes you can uh, 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 the government can end up targeting religion in a way that is a little subtle, because it has a general law but lots of exceptions, but not exceptions for religion. And the other point I would make is that uh, under federal statutory law, uh, specifically the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which applies to the federal government, as well as some state statutes and state constitutional uh, requirements, uh, sometimes you'll find that a, a general government, a, a general law of neutral applicability, or neutral law of general applicability, I always mix that up, um, will violate the, uh, some, some source of law, whether it be a state constitution or a federal statute. And so that's, uh, that, that's kind of a, uh, that's not a federal constitutional requirement, but but it sometimes is uh, is required as a matter of federal statutory or state constitution.
0: And law. as we're as we're sort of getting these sort of pieces onto the chessboard, there's one other thing I, I sort of want to touch on. Oftentimes, when when we hear about these cases at the Supreme Court, a phrase will keep coming up, and that is the phrase "compelling interest" um, or and and maybe also "least restrictive means." If you could tell us quickly what "compelling interest" and "least restrictive means" mean,
1: that's kind of uh, the classic formulation for what's called strict scrutiny that the that the Supreme Court uses and it uses that in cases where very important rights are allegedly infringed upon by government action whether it be racial discrimination or uh, or free speech rights for example and so in the religious context in the context of religious freedom if uh, for example, the uh, under in a case called uh, in a stat, under a statute like RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, the federal government is not allowed to burden somebody's religious beliefs unless it has a compelling interest and unless the law serves that interest in a, in the least restrictive means. So, the court applies strict scrutiny uh, analysis to government laws that burden religion under this statute
0: if i'm hearing you correctly that's a way of making sure that the government doesn't use its immense power to uh to persecute a religious minority is that correct
1: uh right yeah exactly that the government if it's going to 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 do something to that's going to harm religious minorities or majorities although it's usually minorities because majorities generally don't pass laws to harm themselves but so if they're harming minorities they can only do it if they have the most you know, compelling reason and they do it in the most narrow way possible.
0: And we'll we'll begin kind of digging into the book in just a moment, but I have one last question, because if our listeners have done any any uh, research on you at all, they might have found out that you, in fact, are not a person of belief. You are a person who professes to have no belief, maybe even to be an atheist. Why would you care about these religious <laughs> questions?
1: Yeah, no, I am an atheist. I'm a sad atheist. I'm not happy to be an atheist. And... I do have a long background in studying religion. I've always been fascinated by religion, and I believe that religious freedom is one of our most important values. It drives me nuts when some of my fellow atheists and humanists and secularists, you know, speak poorly of religion and talk about religious freedom as though it's not important, because I think it's really one of our most fundamental freedoms.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Boston University School of Law professor Jay Wexler, And he's joining us today to talk about his new book, When God Isn't Green, a worldwide journey to places where religious practice and environmentalism collide. We'll be back in a moment. is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Jay Wexler. He's a Boston University School of Law professor, and he has a new book, When God Isn't Green, A Worldwide Journey to Places Where Religious Practice and Environmentalism Collide. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that Jay Wexler was one of our first guests in 2012 in our show number 1207, Religion and the Law, and we're happy to welcome him back. Well, Professor Wexler... When you wrote uh, the book that we talked about in 2012, Holy Hullabaloos, you basically took a road trip around the United States of America, visiting all the different sites uh, where a, a significant Supreme Court case about religion had occurred. And in this new book, When God Isn't Green, you choose instead to go around the world and visit a whole bunch of different countries where environmental laws or environmental interests and religious practices are in a collision course. You like traveling, don't you?
1: <laughs> My uh, next book is about space. <laughs> I'm going to the moon. No, I do really like traveling. And, and I realized when I wrote Holy Hella Blues that it's really fun and informative in a way. In to go to places where things are actually happening and meet the people who are involved and talk to them and see, you know, on the ground what's happening as opposed to reading about it in books, which is what as a professor I usually do. So, when I had this chance to 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 expand my travels outside of the United States, I jumped at the chance.
0: Now, you teach constitutional law and particularly with a, you you have a focus a lot of times in your in your teaching on first amendment issues and religious issues we have protections in the, in the United States for religious belief and religious practice. But when you when you begin to go around the world, uh, that's not always the case. And so what was the first thing that you encountered when you began to go to sort of uh, places outside America and encounter these different legal systems? What were some of the things that you took away from that?
1: Well, it's interesting. Um, actually, uh, um, it's kind of a hard question. I it, most of the I, I, first of all, I should say I don't really have a, I can't claim to have any full understanding of the legal systems that I uh, in, in all the countries that I went to. I mean, trying to understand all the the legal system of India, for example, it's just uh, not something I was able to do in the time that I was researching the book. But what what, what I did find is that you you do get different approaches, different um, uh, in, in many places to these to the issues that you would, then you would see in the United States, for example. Uh, and actually, they they're tend to be more pro-religion, I think, uh, at least in the examples I saw, where it seemed to be very difficult for the government to try to figure out how to protect the environment in cases where religious rituals were having uh, pretty pretty harmful effects. I'm thinking about India specifically, because uh, that was one of my most interesting trips, I thought, maybe the most interesting. I went there to investigate the, uh, a festival in Mumbai, where um, millions and millions of Hindus worship the Ganesh god uh, over the course of ten days of worshiping giant twenty-foot statues of of, the, of Ganesh, and then at the end of the festival, they sort of they, they they parade the the idols through town, and they bring them to the water, and they just leave them in the sea uh, where they disintegrate. And
0: <laughs> so, our listeners are clear about about what we're talking about here. Uh, give us a visual. What does Ganesh look like?
1: So Ganesha is a is a an elephant god. He has an elephant head and a human body and several arms, sometimes four, sometimes more. Uh there's always a mouse involved. Apparently the Ganesha always is is protected by a small mouse. And so and, and so that so it's an elef, elephant-headed god basically. Uh that's supposedly the remover of all obstacles among other things. And and it's one of the uh, one of the big uh, deities that uh, is worshipped in Hinduism, and especially during this
0: festival. And so, what we're seeing, or what you saw, and what we're seeing through your eyes, is um, you said twenty foot tall statues, so big, elephant headed, multi armed statues made of made of various materials, being taken down to the water and disintegrated in the water. Do I have that right?
1: Well, they're, they're almost always made of plaster of Paris, and they only sort of disintegrate when they get into the water. They kind of break up. They add all the silt and particulate matter and stuff to the water. Uh, some of them only break into chunks. The studies that have been done seem to show that, it's, uh, that they've had a terrible effect on the water quality. But, yeah, you're right. General, basically, it's bringing giant or regular size, but oftentimes giant idols and leaving them into the, in the sea.
0: And you said that millions of people do this.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, Well, Mumbai has 20 million people, and it's a festival that encompasses the entire city. I think, actually, there were maybe uh, 100,000 idols, in fact, immersed during the festival, 100,000. And most of those are fairly small, family size idols, like three feet tall or something, but many, many of them are much larger, 6'20". Twenty-five feet t-
0: tall, and it, it's clear to see how this would have a detrimental I- impact on the environment. And so, I think maybe some of our listeners who are not religious might say, "Well, that's that's a no-brainer. You simply say to these multiple millions of people, you can't do that anymore. Why? Why but, can we not simply do that?"
1: Uh, well, right. So that's what's, uh, what I find so interesting about the, these um, these clashes is that you have some people. Uh, So if I'm talking to an environmentalist group, I might get a reaction like you said, like, why would we, we wouldn't let uh, some, you know, non-religious person go and bring giant idols of a football player or whatever into the water. I suppose there it would be a cricket player and leave them in the water. So why would we, why would we possibly let religious people do the same thing? Um, And then, of course, if you talk to religious people, they might say, "Well, what's the big deal? This is kind of our most important, most uh, uh, sort of formative belief that makes up our entire identities, and it's not like the biggest source of pollution out there. But, but compared to industrial or municipal pollution, it's uh, a drop in the bucket. So why would we? Have, why would the government ever think to regulate religion? And my point is that somewhere in the middle is 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 the right approach, I think. And so we." It's true that we want to protect the environment, of course, but it's also true that we want to protect religious freedom. And if you're in Mumbai <laughs> on the day of this festival, uh, and you see millions and millions of uh, Hindus celebrating, uh, you know, the, and seeing the vitality of this ritual and how uh, happy everybody is and how much you know meaning everybody derives from this uh, day the idea of prohibiting it is, is just impossible to imagine. And in fact, that gets back to my original point when you asked me about the legal systems and how they interact with um, religion elsewhere. This is, this is an area where you can't even imagine, uh, I think, really the law being able to significantly restrict this religious ritual because it is so important and so vital and so many people practice it there. Um, it's been tried. There, <clears throat> there was a state, not the one that Mumbai is in, but the next-door state, tried to prohibit this practice altogether um, and tried to require people to use clay idols instead of plaster of paris idols because they uh, dissolve in the water mu- and cause much less environmental damage. And the courts there said, no, you can't do that. And so uh, this is an area where religion really has more power, I think, than perhaps it does in the United States.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Boston University School of Law Professor Jay Wexler about his new book, When God Isn't Green, a worldwide journey to places where religious practice and environmentalism collide. So in the book... You talk about these vignettes where you travel to a place and you encounter a religious practice that has an environmental impact and just a moment ago we were talking about uh, the practice in Mumbai where huge statues of the elephant headed god Ganesh is taken and dunked in the sea. Um, we also uh, have a vignette where you are going to uh, where you are going around and and exploring the practice of ghost money burning or joss burning. And I'm very interested in this because that's, that's a place where you encounter both sort of enthusiastic environmental degradation and enthusiastic attempts to mitigate the environmental degradation. And first of all, just as a way of getting in, when we talk about ghost money burning or joss burning, what are we talking about?
1: Well, mostly we're talking about the, uh, a festival called the Hungry Ghost Festival during which Taoists. Burn paper that looks like money uh, in huge quantities in order to appease these hungry ghosts, so that they will leave them alone and be nice to them. It's kind of an, it's a, in a way it's an ancestor worship uh, kind of ritual. And so this paper, uh, I have some in my office. I'm looking at it right now. It's uh, it like it says uh, it, it looks like a dollar bill or, or, or you know a, a singaporean dollar or whatever and it but it says you know church of uh hades or a bank of hades on it right and 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 so people burn stacks and stacks and bags of this each each individual person stacks and stacks and bags of it and so collectively the city like singapore or hong kong uh, during this festival is burning tons and tons and tons of this uh, paper and the paper contains all kinds of particulate matter, which has been studied by scientists and is shown to be extremely bad for um, <clears throat> for pulmonary conditions and all sorts of other health problems.
0: And so when we talk about this practice, we're talking about something that could really detrimentally affect people with asthma or young children or the elderly. And so there's there's a real immediate health risk involved, isn't there?
1: Absolutely, and if you look um, online on, on the web and kind of look around at articles uh, from Singapore specifically, where, which is a very diverse country where people live right next to each other, you know, people who have very different religious beliefs live right next to each other, you see instance after instance where people are kind of yelling at each other uh, to keep your jaw smoke to yourself and stop burning stuff on your porch. And, uh, you know, uh, th- there was one incident where this one, Lady got really, really mad at this other guy who was burning Johnson through a television at him, and so uh, it it causes a lot of uh, you know immediate distress to people who are well to people who are practicing it. True, sure, but uh, but to other people who are of course are not consenting to the practice, uh, uh,
0: even even more so. Well, and that, that begins to bring up an issue, and that is when you have uh, a populated area and you have a significant number of people engaging in a religious practice that has an environmental impact, oftentimes that has to be balanced against the people who are not of that religious practice or might be of no religious practice at all. Is that correct?
1: Right, absolutely. And so um, what they've tried to do, it, it differs by country. Uh, in Singapore they uh there's there's uh one thing they try to do is they try to um encourage church uh, uh temples to use kind of smokeless furnaces so uh, I visited this one temple where you go and you put your joss paper in the in the in the furnace and instead of the thing belching out uh black soot from the top after it gets after it's burned it goes through some sort of um you know technological Transformation or something, and basically nothing comes out. So you have <laughs> you're burning the paper, but there's no smoke. Uh, and so that's something that they've tried. Uh, and the, but the but the problem, which I noticed with that, is that nobody likes to use those kinds of things because they don't they don't allow people, I think, to express their religious uh, you know beliefs in the, in a in a vital way. If you put you put your paper in the in the furnace and nothing comes out. What are you doing for the gods? You know, sort of. So, uh, but there, but definitely there have been these attempts to try to figure out ways to reduce the amount of burning and uh, ban certain kinds of things. And but it's it's a really difficult problem because people believe very strongly that they need to burn the paper, and so it's there's a lot of pressure on the government to allow them to do it.
0: Well, and I wanted to to get into exactly what you just said because I've been thinking a lot about that. That issue with the smokeless furnaces since I read about it in your book, so when I used to teach uh, courses on on understanding religion and, and introductions to religion, I would talk about the fact that you know we 're largely talking about invisible forces and and I would talk about the fact that people who have had their crops die or have had members of their family die, they, they may do every earthly and visible thing they can do to try and, and correct the situation. And then once they've done everything physical and visible that they can do, they then turn to the invisible things to try and engage the help of the gods or the, the forces of nature or whatever. And when we're talking about this smokeless uh, furnace, you've taken away one of the visible effects of trying to influence the invisible world. And I wonder if, if that's a reason why people don't flock to these these more environmentally friendly alternatives is because you know come on i'm i'm trying to already deal with something that's invisible and the one visible part of it you've now made invisible to me do you feel like i'm on on track there or am i off base
1: <laughs> no i think i that uh sounds good i mean it's there aren't many of these things and i so i can't and i visited one and i was this is all anecdotal that you know it didn't seem like people were using it so i could you know be totally off on that but if i'm right that that people are not you know, excited about using this this kind of smokeless furnace, for example, and much prefer to have the smoke belched out in, into the atmosphere. Uh, then it very well could be this the kind of uh, analysis you're providing hel- uh, helps explain that resistance.
0: Well, and you you traveled around the world, but you also had uh, a couple of significant experiences here in America, although one of them could be debatable whether or not it's technically in America uh, you you went to a whale hunt or the results of a whale hunt and you also did some uh, did some exploration of the practice of collecting eagle feathers and both of these are rituals that occur within the territorial United States but they have a lot of tribal and Native American uh, connections. And I, I just—I'd love to hear you talk about your experiences of of being in America, but having this sort of alien practice happening around you.
1: Yeah, well, that's—I um, can talk about both of those instances, uh, both of those examples. The it's the eagle feathers that got me interested in this whole area to begin with. When I when I came back from Holy Hollow it, it just turned out that I had not visited any Native Americans and uh, examined any Native American practices. So I sort of had my eye out for a for an example. And uh, I came across, since I teach environmental law and church state law, that in one of those classes, I think it was environmental law, actually, I came across this uh, controversy which involves uh, Native American tribes who believe that the bald and golden eagle are sacred and want to and need to use their feathers as part of their rituals, which runs into the problem that the United States government has made it illegal since 1940 to possess any part of a gold, golden or bald eagle. And so there are cases about this, you know, should they, Native Americans have the have the religious freedom rights to be able to, for example, take a, take an eagle from the wild or possess a feather? Um, I visited, for example, a an aviary where <clears throat> where a, a Native American tribe basically keeps fifty or so injured eagles, and uh, and and tries to rehabilitate them or at least take care of them, and when, then the the eagles. Molt their feathers. The uh, the government allows the the tribe to distribute those feathers from these injured eagles to the tribe, and so that was pretty fascinating. I mean, that's a very really creative way uh, to sort of try to solve this clash. Now, when you talk about being in a in a totally foreign place, uh, there's nothing more foreign uh, place. There's no more foreign place that I've ever been in the United States than Barrow, Alaska, which is where I went went to this whaling festival, and that. That is the town that's the most, it's the most northern settlement in the United States. It's 300 miles above the Arctic Circle. And it's, ma- great majority of people who live there are Inupiates, Native Alaskans. And that is, it, so it is really, uh, just very different from any other place in the United States. And it is a place where whaling really cements the identity of the community and has for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so I spent a week there and it's a, it's, not an easy place to stay, I gotta tell you, um you know there's nothing much to do there, and it's cold, and the sun never goes down and uh but it was just absolutely fascinating to be in a different world like that and then to go to the whaling festival and watch this community come together over uh this basically what they believe to be a sacred animal, which gives itself to the community to feed the community for the year uh was really quite uh quite remarkable, I thought.
0: We're speaking today with Jay Wexler. He's, uh, he's a professor at the Boston University School of Law, where he's taught environmental law and church-state law since 2001. He's the author of, of several books, including one of my favorites, Holy Hullabaloo's, and a book called The Odd Clauses. We're speaking today about his most recent book, When God Isn't Green, a worldwide journey to places where religious practice and environmentalism collide. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Professor Jay Wexler. He teaches at the Boston University School of Law and he's been on faculty there since 2001 teaching both environmental law and church-state law. He's the author of several books. We had him on in our 2012 season to talk about his book, Holy Hullabaloo's. Today we have him back and he's speaking about his new book, When God Isn't Green, A Worldwide Journey to Places Where Religious Practice and Environmentalism Collide. Before the break, you were talking about a philosophy that we find in in communities that have ancient roots that involve uh, interaction with specific and and uh, significant spirit animals, and so you talk about the Native American tribes that that see eagle feathers as very important, or you you look at the uh, the practice of whaling in uh, in barrel Alaska, and you used a phrase that I want to dig into, and that was the notion that these that these communities have that in some way the animal gives themselves to the community in the process of the hunt or in the taking. And could you just tell us a little bit about what that what that what that worldview is like?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's what both situations are about. I mean, I've seen I've seen that uh, mentioned both with respect to the feathers and uh, and eagles generally and the whales. And I think the idea is the whale hunters for to take the whaling. Uh, the the hunters have to sort of be as pure as they possibly can be. They need to basically worship the whale and to uh, respect the whale. And if they do that, and they do it in the proper way, then the whale will recognize that the community is worthy of being sort of It's worthy of its own sacrifice. And so the whale then responds to the way that the hunters have prepared for the hunt and acted during the hunt by turning itself over to the the hunters and then, therefore, to the community so that the community can uh, continue to live, basically. I mean, because, I mean, places like Barrow, Alaska, there's no food, (laughs) so, I mean, you can't grow anything, and so they really do rely on whales and and other animals, like walruses, for example, for their livelihood. So, it's kind of a sacred combination of the community acts in a way that respects and worships the animal, and then the animal repays the community by giving itself to the community so that the community can continue to flourish.
0: Well, when I hear you describe it that way, it sounds as if this is a very symbiotic relationship that is very much taking into account the balance of nature. And that to me sounds like the best of all possible kind of arrangements with regard to environments because the the community would die and would not be able to have its livelihood or its subsistence if it over-farmed or if it over-hunted And yet I'm aware that there must be an environmental objection from from the environmentalist philosophy even to that level of symbiosis and that level of balance. And I I wonder if you encountered or explored or researched what that environmental objection would be.
1: Well, I wasn't there when there was any environmental kind of uh, opposition. So in other words, they're not environmentalists who are are hanging out just generally in Barrow to to, uh, object to the practice. But occasionally – you certainly do see environmentalists ob- uh, object to even subsistence whaling practices like this. You know there was a movie about Barrow Alaska um, because Barrow Alaska is the place where these where three whales were kind of were stuck in the ice a few a bunch of years ago sort of the world turned its attention to the attempt to free these whales and the and the world sort of f- started focusing on Barrow Alaska during this period and there were definitely environmentalists who realized what was going on in Barrow and were talking about how there shouldn't be any whaling at all. In fact, there was a period of time when the International Whaling Commission actually did take away the the permit that allowed them to to hunt certain uh, whales in, in Barrow. And I talked, I, I tried to ask people who were there during that period what it was like those years. And it was just it, the, the, how they expressed it was, it's just a dark time. The community fell apart. It was you know it was incredibly sad. And so I agree with you that it, that in this that particular case the whaling uh, and the community exist together and it's and it's a a good relationship. Now, but you can imagine from the perspective of somebody who just doesn't buy into this worldview at all and all they see is a, is uh, people killing whales for food, you know, and why would you why would you allow anyone to do that? These beautiful animals who are so majestic and so brilliant and have families and all and all the things that draw people to whales. You know, I think that's their perspective. If you don't credit at all the unique beliefs of the community, then the justification for killing these creatures goes out the window, right? And it's just
0: mass slaughter. Well, and you just raised an issue that I really would like to dig into, and that's the notion of crediting the unique beliefs of a community. Because, again, we're dealing with things that can't be objectively, evidentially uh, justified. Um, Someone says to you, the invisible sky God that I worship has told me that I need to do this practice, and you can simply wave your hand and say there are no invisible sky gods, and we 're part of an American secular culture that doesn't recognize that we should have the government engaging with invisible sky gods or earth gods or water gods or name your God um, so why should i why should I care why should i why should I give any credence at all to um a belief or a practice that is that is ethically abhorrent to me. Why should I make space for the invisible sky or earth or water gods of my neighbor?
1: Right, and you hear that all the time. Um, and that's the kind of attitude that drives me crazy amongst my, some of my peers. You know, it depends whether you have empathy for other people and are willing to sort of put aside your own hardcore beliefs to allow there to be space and in, in public and to some extent in public policy for recognition uh, of what other people believe even if you don't believe it and you you know claim you can't see it we're a society where we have lots of people who share who have lots of different beliefs and we could go around and telling people that they're wrong I suppose but that doesn't seem like a very good way to run a society. Uh, so that's why I don't like the angry atheists, for example. Or we could empathize with our fellow citizens and say to ourselves, well, we I can't see the water god, but this person obviously believes that there is a water god, and that belief is incredibly important to that person's identity. And so I'm going to, you know, allow that person some space to practice that religion as long as uh, it doesn't destroy, you know, some of the liberal principles I I stand for. For example, I'll I'll allow the government to let them worship the sea god uh, in a way that I might, you know, we might otherwise be skeptical of.
0: Well, let's stay with this line of thought, but let's flip it around. So we've talked about creating space in the public sphere for a multiplicity of religious practices, some of which we might not agree with. But we also have examples of those sometimes in the majority religion. Uh, in our case, in America, that would be Christianity, but we could also talk about, you know, Buddhism or Islam in other countries and other cultures. But uh, an attempt to take and solidify a religious belief or a religious practice or a religious expectation into civil law. Now, we. we we were first talking about creating space for multiple practices, but now we're talking about taking one practice and making it central to uh, a civic uh, conversation. What is the objection to that? Why, why can't we take our laws in America and, and base them on uh, religious ideas and religious principles of the majority religion?
1: Well, so now we're talking about government actually supporting religion or government putting its, uh, you know, its endorsement behind religion. Or a particular religious practice. and I think that the problem with that is it gets the government involved in in uh, proclaiming that one viewpoint is true and other viewpoints are are false or not worthy of respect. And I think that's not what the government ought to be doing. The government, of course, serves everybody uh, and all the citizens, regardless of what they believe or don't believe. And so I think the government ought not to uh, to sort of enact one view of the good life or one view of uh, ultimate meeting, for example, that's contested into binding law, a law that's binding on uh, people who don't believe it. I think that's not what we want the government to do. So, so I think the government has the, the obligation to provide space for religious believers, but that doesn't uh, at all mean that it ought to support any religion, whether it's a majority or, or
0: anything else. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Jay Wexler, who's a professor at the Boston University School of Law, where he's taught environmental and church state law since 2001. We're talking about his new book, When God Isn't Green, A Worldwide Journey to Places Where Religious Practice and Environmentalism Collide. A moment ago, you used a phrase. You said, the government is here to serve everybody. And that really brings us to the heart and soul of both the book that we talked about in 2012, Holy Hullabaloo's, and this current book, When God Isn't Green. And that's the notion of balancing competing interests. And you've spent uh, a good portion of your career studying the way that uh, the American government has tried to balance the competing interests of religious practice and sort of civil accommodation, but also you've, you've balanced the kind of interests of of the way that we use the environment both for commerce but also for uh, longevity and the flourishing of, of life. And I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about the philosophy of balance from a judicial perspective. What what are we talking about when we're talking about trying to balance these competing interests?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's no, a, it's a good question. When you move from uh, government policy or, or just general discourse in the public to actually judges having to make decisions, because there's certainly a school of thought which says that the courts, the, judi- you know, the judicial branch, ought to be drawing straight lines, because that's what the rule of law means. Justice Scalia is, is famously, you know, said that the rule of law is a law of rules, and he famously hated the idea that that courts would be balancing different interests and in trying to apply constitutional provisions. Which is why he decided uh, and wrote the case in 1990. That held that the government can, in fact, burden people's religious practices through neutral laws of general applicability. And on the other side in that case was Justice O'Connor, who was a famous balancer. She'd balance anything. Uh, you know, she walked around the world and she'd see two things and a pear and a banana, and she'd balance them. And, and, and her judicial decisions are all about balancing. And so her view was that the, there was nothing wrong with the court's standing in there and saying, well, there's there's the government interest here and there's the religious interest there and we're gonna decide in this particular case that the government interest outweighs the private interest or whatever. So those reflect very two different uh judicial philosophies about what courts should do. And the problem with allowing balancing with for judges is that basically then you're just saying, well these nine people, the Supreme Court, who we decided can sit on the Supreme Court because they're really good lawyers, are gonna just kinda decide what the law is Based on their own, you know, whim is what Scalia would say, uh, and so you don't have any, you don't have any clarity. You don't know what's going to happen in the next case, and you're allowing these unelected judges to make these incredibly important decisions. On the other side, you say, as somebody like Justice O'Connor would say, judges are appointed to exercise their judgment, right? After all, and. They're not just enacting their own beliefs into law, but they're actually trying to take trying to appreciate the specific context that disputes arise in, think hard about what the interests are and reach a reasonable conclusion to justify it through uh, judicial opinion so that's just a different view of what judges do. Now, I'm much, much more on the Justice O'Connor side than the Justice Scalia side, and I'm happy to let judges do balancing and exercise their discretion and their judgment. Uh, But lots of people, of course, disagree.
0: Now, you have now taken sort of two public road trips. Uh, You took a road trip around America with Holy Hullabaloo's where you looked at famous sites where Supreme Court cases around uh, religious practice were disputed. And now with your new book, When God Isn't Green, you've gone around the world literally and looked at sites where environmental uh, environmental protections and religious practices have come into conflict. You have looked at a great variety, a great spectrum of religious practices, but you have described yourself as a, as a person without faith, as an atheist. I wonder how in these two road trips has your appreciation or your interest in, in religious practices and religious life changed and altered over the course of sort of observing all these people investing so much of their time and their thought into these invisible things?
1: Well, I can't say that my, you know, my beliefs have changed at all. And I I suppose what I would say is that I have a more concrete uh, appreciation for what I've always appreciated in the abstract, which is so I think before I went to see the whales, uh, the whaling festival, for example, or before I went to see the Ganesh immersion, I would have said that these are very vital religious practices that hold together the community, um, and that I believe that they should be supported. But having gone there and witnessed them in uh, in person, I I guess I just have a stronger uh, my m- m- my belief is kind of that 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 these are important practices is stronger, I suppose. But it's just more concrete. I I you know I can see the Hindus in Mumbai celebrating the Ganesh, and I can see the Inupiates in Alaska uh, gather, gaining meaning from, this, from the whale celebration in a way that I had not been able to do before. And so it's kind of a, a matter of degree. It's a little subtle. Um, I wouldn't say that I have specific positions that have changed, but, uh, but the way I feel and think about them and the way I can talk about them, for example, to my students, I think is very different.
0: Well, and that that raises an issue that I, I'm very interested in. How does this experience translate into the classroom? Because you're teaching people that are going to be lawyers, and you're teaching them about one particular sliver of the law. And so, how do you emphasize and and make them really feel the importance of these subjects? And I'm hoping that they get it, but do they get it?
1: <laughs> um, I think a lot. I think most of them do get it. I mean, in, in environmental law environmental law is, a, is an area where we've always uh, used you know real world examples to uh to get across the point um you know i don't actually go on field trips uh with students in environmental law but a lot of people do and but i do use movies you know and pictures and and, and really seeing the environmental degradation uh uh of certain practices really can drive home how how important it is to protect the environment. I mean, you you, you can't teach, for example, the Clean Water Act without showing some video of the Cuyahoga River on fire, you know, or or the Superfund statue without showing Love Canal. And so with the religion uh, side, I think I try to do the same thing. I try, you know, to try to bring home that these religious freedom claims have real depth, have real uh, import for individuals and for communities and to the extent that I can describe what I've seen and bring that home to the students, I, I, I think that's really important. You know, I think it does make the class more interesting. I sure hope it does. Uh, I feel more confident teaching these classes and teaching the cases to having been to them, been to places where they came from. And I, can, I think I can convey what's at, what's at issue in the cases and the disputes better having gone there that rather than just saying, well, you read the, you read the case you know, in paragraph it says blah 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 let me tell you what it's actually like there you know so I think it's helped me a lot in the classroom
0: well Jay Wexler every time that I read one of your books and especially when I have the chance to talk to you I always learn so much and I just I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today thank you very much
1: thank you I really enjoyed uh, talking with you
0: We've been speaking today with Jay Wexler. He's a professor at the Boston University School of Law, where he's taught environmental law and church-state law since 2001. He's the author of several books, including Holy Blues, which is one of my favorites, and The Odd Clauses. We were talking today about his newest book, When God Isn't Green, A Worldwide Journey to Places Where Religious Practice and Environmentalism Collide. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media LLC with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kijik. David Dalt engineered the show. Kim Tron, David Dalt, and Colleen Pellisier did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebookcom Radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalton, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. at the beginning of the conversation you joked uh and said that your next project was going to be a, a a trip to the moon but i'm wondering if you have actually thought about a, a continuance of of this sort of series of of road trips around religion and if so what what is your next project going to be well i'm i'm at
1: hard at work on the next project and it is about religion and it's uh it does involve travel although i wouldn't call it quite the road trip and what I'm doing in this book is uh, examining minority religious groups, including humanists and atheists, which I'm counting uh, in here as as alternatives, uh, and seeing how they have taken advantage of Supreme Court cases allowing religion in public life to kind of participate alongside Christians by, for example, putting up monuments or doing legislative prayers in front of town councils, things like that. And so, so it's uh, it's pretty interesting uh research so far
0: anytime you have a new project i want to talk to you because i just love what you do
1: oh, i really appreciate that and this is a great show is a much uh, i've done a b- bunch of radio shows uh with respect to this uh book uh, but none uh, quite as sophisticated so that was really fun
0: that's very kind of you to say and i look forward to talking to you again i hope you have a great weekend thanks again thank you okay bye-bye Bye.